You're listening to Brave New Space. I'm Robert. I'm Keegan. And we're going to share with you all things new space and beyond. Why we started this podcast. Brave New Space is about sharing insights and perspectives on the business and commerce of all things space to global investors and entrepreneurs. And we want to encourage more investors, entrepreneurs, and policymakers to consider participating in this space renaissance. So today we have our friend Marshall Culpepper guesting with us. He is a software engineer and space entrepreneur who heads up the startup Cubos. So welcome, Marshall. Thanks for having me, Robert. Yeah, certainly. So, uh, you know, we were talking a few months ago about the, the sort of the verticals and the, the, the landscape of, of the new space industry. And and you had definitely some ideas that could be a little better stratified and, and other ways to be teased out because we all know about some of the more well-known ones, such as uh, launch, communications, imaging, tourism. There's really a whole lot more that that if you're you're interested in going a little deeper into into the space sector, it's a lot more than than just the rockets per se. Yeah, if you, if you're coming at it from an enthusiast crowd, those four verticals tend to be the only ones you ever hear about. And if we're being honest, imaging is often lucky if it even makes that list in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I think to your point, there's a lot of focus on launch, which I think is due. It's um it's been a pretty hard problem for the industry traditionally but when you look at the actual numbers and how much let's say like commercial launch makes year over year it's a substantial chunk of money but it's actually a relatively small portion of the overall space industry and if you look at in comparison to say satellite manufacturing which is actually uh, much larger than even the the launch vertical and so i think what i see a lot of the sort of current market reports or or even just the um the graphs and sort of infographics are missing is really along the lines of sort of the entire ecosystem that feeds into both the satellite creation, but also all of the supporting infrastructure on the ground as well. And that covers the gamut from early stage mission design with simulations, requirements, management, hardware in the loop manufacturing to satellite manufacturing with subsystems, payloads, buses, components, Obviously, launch is a big part of getting to space. And then finally, all the gr- supporting ground infrastructure like um, antenna systems, radios, MNC, ground TTNC, ground networks and mission operation network centers, satellite teleports, data relay. And finally, the downstream uh, management of data, telemetry, and analytics, which is its own sort of vertical uh, in its own right. All right, Marshall, you just covered a lot of ground there. And it's worth mentioning yep. that of all the verticals you mentioned, they're all the barriers to entry are far lower today than they've been at any other t- time in history. Whereas launch is still probably the riskiest, certainly the most cost, and uh, certainly the vertical that requires the most amount of upfront cost. Do you agree with that? That uh, getting into all those other verticals is something that is a lot more approachable than it's than it has been in a long time. I I would totally agree, and in fact, I would go even further to say that a lot of value has been sort of traditionally hoarded in sort of a lot of these verticals in the space industry. And while there is a lot of value to be made as a launch company, I think where a lot of companies are missing the opportunity is around extracting some of the value from a lot of traditional players in some of these big verticals. Just a few handful of examples. There's a company that's been around, maybe the progenitor of the idea of like a software company for the space industry, a company called Analytical Graphics or AGI. Mm-hmm. 
they make a package called uh, the, the Satellite or Systems Toolkit, and it's being used by pretty much every major space mission that's been created in the last 20, 30 years. And they've built a, you know, a very large private software company just off this software package. And they're one of, you know, several in this specific vertical of mission design and planning that have created a substantial amount of value just from looking at a very specific section of the overall life cycle of a satellite mission. But we've noticed it seems like groups are starting to specialize more, whether it's creating mission as a service, those that are developing components, where, you know, before things were done, you know, space was sort of a, a vertical industry, no pun intended, where things did tend to be sort of vertically integrated. And sometimes you had, you know, if you were a prime, you would have your sort of key suppliers and they would, uh, but now it, it seems with the sort of the new space flavor that you have some of these companies that would be normally exclusively supplying the primes are wanting to lead efforts themselves. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, there's a few different competing sort of initiatives I see in the overall marketplace. One is the impetus to be vertically integrated. And I think SpaceX obviously sort of is the the progenitor or at least the most obvious, you know, successful example of that uh, going from soup to nuts and having very few outside suppliers. And then even more tradition, even more new satellite companies have started doing their own in-house manufacturing to a large degree because the manufacturing um, at the time when they started was just not up to snuff yet. And so I do think that there is a there's a thread in the industry that's going completely vertically integrated and even service providers themselves who are trying to vertically integrate on behalf of their customers. Uh, for example, you know, the, the more traditional end-to-end service providers, uh, Lockheed Martin and Boeing, but also new new players like Loft Orbital. And then, you know, there's another, I would say, much larger chunk of the industry right now that is using off-the-shelf components wherever they can, both like hardware and software, and also trying to really focus on their business value proposition, which is at the end of the day, if we're talking about, especially a satellite, you know, the, the payload really is the business proposition. And so the companies that are doing that well, I feel are, are, are much more plentiful in the industry. And if you look around, you see quite a few uh, partnerships and teaming agreements and uh, pretty extensive supplier, you know, uh, supply chains uh, from these companies. But even more interesting, I think a more interesting trend with that group is that some of them are starting to do multiple supply chains. But in any case, I, th- I think that these two ideas are both interesting in their own right, and I don't think either one is necessarily right or wrong. I just think that they each have their own trade-offs. Well, it's definitely been something worth watching in that as the barriers to entry in satellite manufacturing have started to come down, really with the advent of the nanosat boom, those new supply chains have really started to emerge outside of the traditional suppliers because now you have new customers that have a new set of needs, and the volume is now high enough to where you're not seeing the kind of hyper-specialization that occurred in the industry for a long time. So it's also it, one fun fact about all this is it's creating both new problems and new opportunities as well. There's a company out there, they're, uh, if I remember right, they're actually a fellow alum from Lightspeed Innovations, shameless plug, called Voyager Space Technologies that developed a platform purely for just streamlining the entire supply chain process and making it easier to be able to design satellites uh, before you ever actually have to you know, get out the old SMAD book and start putting them to get, together on pen and paper. And their whole idea was to really just get this new su- these new supply chains that have emerged really kind of all under one cookbook that a new, en- a new engineering company could use to be able to design a satellite and implement that far easier. 
And even five years ago, that solution was something that no one would have even thought to have gone looking at. And now we got a whole new vertical to be able to solve a problem that didn't even exist only a few years ago before these barriers to entry really started to fall. Yeah. And I I mean, just for thinking, I, I, I tend to try to think in two dimensions when I think about markets and what I think Voyager did and other companies like them, like Valley Space and some other companies in the sort of similar idea space. A, a lot of those companies I would describe in a more of a horizontal sort of juxtaposition where there are several verticals in the industry that they sort of take advantage of or complement well. And they're what they're doing is they're taking and supplying value to multiple verticals at once, if that makes sense. So they their solution might actually span the gamut between multiple different Oh, absolutely. Uh, verticals. And that's that's how I think about horizontal. Oh, yeah. And and you're absolutely right. Um, there is no right answer on this right now. I mean, uh, that's... Yeah, right. Yeah, th- this is... Yeah, yeah map and territory, right? <laughs> yeah. And one of the... Well, one of the interesting things you said is like, you know, the there's a lot of new opportunities to basically aggregate some of these capabilities into a more holistic offering. And I think it's interesting that there's different ways you can think about that problem. One is as a sort of a software layer that integrates these things and another it might be as a service provider that sort of takes that off the hands of a, a potential customer and you see that trend as well in sort of competition in terms of what the different approaches to that problem are um, in different areas all over the satellite industry marshall let me ask you is when, when you have someone putting up a, a satellite and they're going to want to sell their their data to a user and and that service or application might provide one flavor, one use case, and and a customer might find they have to go to potentially multiple, you know, almost like multiple carriers, multiple satellite providers to get the the, the full picture. Do you see any room for sort of crossing the or partnering between the walled gardens and and a second issue around interoperability? Yeah, so that's a that's a good question. So I think just to recap, you're you're asking about whether like specific data providers from space and like the the sort of value statement of combining those those disparate data yeah. sets into new insights yeah i mean I, I think that's that's absolutely true and i would say that there are several analytics companies in the market that are trying to do that and not just combining different data streams from different spacecraft but also from different sources on Earth, so for example, drones or airplanes, whatever it might be. And so, you know, I think the best analytics companies out there are getting data from wherever they can. And the ones that tend to have like a space flavor to them are probably using space assets, but it's probably not the only thing they're using. And so there are probably exceptions to that rule, but the vast majority of the ones that I've seen and talked to are using you know, a data fusion model where they, they, they combine multiple different data sources from space and on the ground and everywhere in between. And so with regards to standardization, especially when it, when it comes to data formats, I know there's been a lot of work in the open source movement, particularly in the last year or two from, I don't know if you guys are aware, there's a, InQtel has a group called Cosmic that has been working on standardizing, especially around geospatial data formats. And They've released a lot of open source data and open source uh, software to help both like satellite data providers and uh, downstream processors, like whether it's an analytics company or whatever, to basically consume and produce a standardized format for this, this kind of, whether it's like, you know, uh, imagery or, or even just like uh, radar information in a sort of, in a general purpose geospatial data format. And the data vertical is probably the most important least well-known vertical, at least to the wider uh, world right now. 
I mean, for my money, that's been the vertical that really has been driving this uh, big boom just in the number of constellations of satellites that have been put up in the last few years. Does that uh, sound about right to you? Yeah, I would say, yeah, there's two, I think, really interesting things you can say about the data play in space. One is that if you just look at the the startup funding, like the venture capital funding, pretty much, there's basically two big buckets that have received the majority of the funding. It's like rockets and data. So it's definitely a good play if you want to raise a lot of money. <laughs> well, it's a play that it's a play that an investor is going to understand that it that it's something that's been proven out on Earth. the The risk reward profile is a lot more favorable than going at it with a completely new new piece of technology or a completely you know. Uh, uh, shall we say more fanciful market uh, to, that you're trying to hit that doesn't yep. even, might not even exist yet. Yeah, totally agree. And I think the other thing I'd like to say, which I think sometimes gets missed in sort of these market reports, especially that are space focused, is that a lot of the a lot of the companies, whether they are a data or analytics company or even just a, a like a satellite constellation providing the raw data, their markets aren't actually space. They are some other downstream market, right? And so while the space industry benefits from that because all that money that's being spent uh, you know on these spacecraft is ultimately making it into this the space industry the downstream markets aren't the space industry itself in most cases so that's a really interesting part of sort of i'm not sure if i would call it a confusion but definitely like a it kind of muddies the waters a bit when we're talking about the size of the space industry like what do you consider like uh, i'll just use a good example a former employer of mine spire you know they are a great uh, space company they have you know, I think nearly a hundred satellites in space at this point. And, you know, if you looked at whatever their latest value is, you know, would you count that as a space industry value for the overall market? I would argue probably not, right? You would count that in the, you know, the commercial, you know, cargo tracking and weather markets probably more than anything, right? You know, and while a lot of their money is spent in, in creating and launching and servicing those satellites, that is not really the same as thing as like the value of that company. You know, you bring up a really interesting point, and this is something that I don't know if you would consider it a, if it would be considered a unique problem to the space industry, but this is one of the few industries I know whose definition of what their gross output is every year is so completely insular to the industry itself. No one would suggest to the aviation industry that packaging and transport is somehow separate of them. And that the only thing that you can really call, you know, part of the aviation industry is manufacture of aircraft and anything that has to do with the <laughs> maintenance and continued operation of said aircraft. When in fact, yeah. they cover such a much wider range of verticals that whose end results and end products have nothing to do with aviation itself. And the same can be said yep. of space. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. I, I'm not sure I have a good answer for that question, but it, it's an observation I make over and over again, which just really confuses the... The overall numbers. <laughs> oh yeah, it's uh, well, we, as any of anyone who's ever had to put together a financial model for a startup will tell you, the numbers are often complete BS in the first place. So it's who knows the same thing might be said for economic analysis. Well, I mean, you know, take a look. I mean, I I really really like uh, Bryce Space's uh, report, for example. I used it in a lot of my market research, and they they do a really good job. But one of the segments that they really call out in their space segmentation is um, earth observation and you know it's a pretty small chunk i think uh, if i remember correctly they for 2018 they they say it's a 360 billion global economy uh, for space but they say that earth observation is something like two or two and a half billion uh, as a part of that well that's like a pretty small chunk but at the same time is that two and a half billion really the 
value of companies that are doing Earth observation from constellations of spacecraft? Because if it is, I, again, I would argue that those companies probably are not selling those images into the space industry. They're probably selling them into, you know, where, wherever these imagery companies have customers, uh, you know. Oh, yeah. And, and, and there's probably not an argument against that, whether it's uh, energy, real estate developers, agriculture, and maybe part of the, maybe it's the refocusing of the message needs to be that space applications and assets are used for sort of downstream terrestrial benefits. It's just, we, we you know, we wouldn't go to space unless there was, it's, it's, it's very expensive and difficult to do so, you know, but there's some things you got to do in space. And if you, you're getting better pictures from uh, the satellite than the drone or somebody on the ground, then that's why they use it. It's not because uh, somebody woke up one day and said, I need a, a photo from space. Right? <laughs> yep, yeah. yeah, you're, you're exactly right. I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I, I think there are probably a few entrepreneurs in the space industry who would maybe raise some exceptions at this point, like who would talk about the the pure in space economy, like, you know, uh, space, like, let's just say like satellite servicing or, you know, refueling and things of those nature that would be a purely space driven economic need. But I think like when we're talking about what this global space economy is today, at least we're talking about stuff that brings value to Earth for the most part. And, and it's an evolution. So, you know, we've seen yeah. uh, our friend uh, Daniel Faber with with yeah. Orbit Fab. He's putting uh, on orbit fuel depots. He's gotten some funding and attention, and we'll probably see more of these in-space model, business models developing that eventually might be essentially trading dollars in space and not necessarily directly coming back to Earth, which I think is fine. You, you know, what are some other underserved areas that are, or I'll call them underserved and developing areas that you find intriguing um, that are maybe that are worth knowing about? Yeah, so I mean, to toot my own horn just a little bit, I mean, I, I think that Overall, because the the verticals are not well represented, it also sort of leaves out the opportunity for a couple of horizontal slices that I see that are super interesting in the market, which are the software solutions specifically for each stage of a, a space mission. And so, you know, I, I kind of built my own model to some degree around this because what I found is that even as good as some of these reports are, especially the SIA and Bryce reports are, are very detailed, they they tend to think about things in terms of uh, hardware or sort of spacecraft capability in general. And wherever you see the, the answer, the truth of any hardware solution, if it includes electronics, uh, there's got to be software somewhere in that package, somewhere in that equation. And so the software parts of those equations tend to sort of get left out or uh, bundled into uh, some of these verticals. And I, one of the things I'd like to call out, and I haven't seen any really anyone really do a good job of segmenting, is around you know the software infrastructure uh, in the space industry. And so specifically, I can kind of point to the things I'm talking about here. So for example, in the mission, we sort of talked about this earlier, in mission design and planning, there are a host of different companies that offer simulation, both spacecraft and body simulation, requirement management and engineering change management, software tools, hardware in the loop and software in the loop sort of simulations for flight software. In the satellite manufacturing space, there's everything from individual subsystem onboard flight software to the sort of the more macro level bus manufacturer uh, mission management and flight software. And then finally, all the way down to at launch, you've got rockets that, that need their own flight software with 
launch integration uh, service providers that have their own ICDs and and sort of um, deploy deployers that have their own levels of electronic and software integration. And you know, I can kind of go on. I think you're starting to get an idea that anytime you see like a processor is where you should think like what software is running on that processor. And the reality of the entire satellite landscape is that at every at every nook and cranny of this of this entire supply chain there are processors running software and in not every case there are necessarily off the shelf products for those but there are definitely there's definitely value and labor at the very least being spent on controlling and uh, sort of creating the software for this industry and so if you if you take a step back from that and realize okay software is literally everywhere in this industry then you think about who what are the what are the types of software that are immediately commercializable or that people are like willing to outsource or willing to pay for a product let's say and uh, that's you know that's where kind of I come in of course but I I I think it's really interesting that we sort of ignore software almost like as a culture in the, in the industry and I think that shines through both in our industry reports but also in sort of our engineering practices and yeah I'm just trying to raise some awareness you heard it here first, folks. We need to, we need an app store for the satellite industry. <laughs> That's right. Now, not to not to brush aside what uh, Marshall is saying. In fact, I want to reinforce this. This is absolutely true and a huge problem. And it starts, I think, really at the collegiate level. When I was going through my college degree program, we had probably one of the better mixes of software and hardware uh, education going on for general aerospace engineers, but it was still pitiful compared to what it really needed to be. I mean, it was more or less just making it easier for folks to be able to do their calculus work. Whereas once you actually get into the industry, the software needs are ridiculous. The companies absolutely live and die on this stuff. I mean, you could honestly make the argument that if SpaceX folded tomorrow and had to liquidate all their assets, the most valuable thing they'd have would probably be, be the launch and la- would actually be the uh, pinpoint landing software they developed. Yep. And and look, software and processes help industries scale. And maybe that's in space has been a very uh, customized, low volume industry, onesies, twosies of satellites. And now we're talking about yep. constellations where uh, of you know hundreds, if not thousands, of satellites. And so, and software will be a critical component from the design and testing of the satellites to the operations and to bringing that data back down and making it you know useful to the to wh- whoever's receiving it. And as these constellations get bigger and we just plain have more stuff flying around up there, the software market for the space industry is only going to get crazier. Just the amount of work that's going to need to be done to ne- to properly network large constellations improve their operations in flight to reduce what your maintenance lifetime costs are going to be of the vehicles themselves. That alone is going to be huge. And then you have collision detection and modifi- and uh, orbit modification tools that will have to be in- onboarded on top of all of that. I mean, it's really going to be, it's the Wild West out there right now. And it's really going to, I think, take off even more than it has in the last few years. Yeah. I mean, so much to say here, but I think, and we, we, I think you touched on it, Robert, but there's so much more to say about ground and, and all that. But you know, just looking at there's some really like very simple order of magnitude math you can do, and you can start to sort of get an appreciation for the magnitude of what how what what role software plays in our industry. So just taking a look again back to the Bryce report where they project basically a 360 billion global space economy. Of that 360, they say that satellite manufacturing is about 19.5, and they say that network equipment, which is all of the uh, ground equipment and radios and operations, um, hardware, all that, is about 13.8. 
presumably in this report, what they're saying is that these two segments are are sort of the the parent segment where the software for those uh, electronic and hardware components actually live. So if you take that at face value and say you've got let's say thirty two to thirty three billion worth of of market there, and what you know what's a what's a rough order of magnitude cost of software in these two segments? Well, a good rough order of magnitude might be ten percent. Let's say that you spend uh, on a mission or on your ground solution, you might spend ten percent of your budget on software. That's a, probably a pretty conservative estimate, but it's good enough to start with. And even with just that rough order of magnitude math, you get to three to four billion dollars in software just from those two segments. And so, and the the numbers are actually much higher than that in reality. And based on bottoms up analysis I've done, it looks more like seven to eight billion. And again, that's really just in two segments of the industry. And so, you start thinking about what is the overall value of software in the space economy. Well, I think it's much higher than that. When you start taking into account analytics and data and eventually some of the newer sort of um, ideas around, you know, managing data in the space and doing onboard processing and things along those lines. But even today, I, I think we sort of miss the fact that, for example, AGI is a multi-hundred million dollar annual revenue business as a pure software company only on mission design. Kratos, Kratos gets missed a lot, especially on the software side. They They do an incredible amount of software on the ground side everything between like C2 and telemetry to network management, software defined radios. And they, I mean, they have acquired multiple software companies in the last 10 years for over, one of them was 300 million. The other was not disclosed, but by all accounts, I mean, they're a public company. You can look into it. They're, they're a multi hundred million dollar annual business just on pure software in the ground and, and data management side of of the space industry, and again, these are just like one examples. Like there's there are multiple companies in each one of these segments that have similar value. What was the small sat company? There was one company I remember a few years ago. There were a small sat developer that actually got out of the Earth imaging business and just went straight into data analytics and just yeah, put all their effort into that. I remember, if I remember correctly, I think you're talking about Ursa. Yeah, that was them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Ursa. I think originally had had the idea that they would put in the, or they put up their own synthetic aperture radar satellites, and then they changed to doing just the analytics and sort of downstream processing of those images uh, from other existing SAR uh, missions. So this is this I think really drives the point home of just how big of a play software can be in the space industry. When a company decides that they're getting out of what every engineer, what is every engineer's dream, actually sending something up into space and focusing purely yeah. on the data analytics side of it as a profit generating mechanism. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, you hit the nail on the head with what engineers want to do because I can tell you our our company uh, hoodie, you know, the typical startup hoodie, the back of it says "Send Code to Space." That's like literally <laughs> our our tagline for our developers. <laughs> Hi, listener. My new book, Space, is open for business is coming out soon and I want you to get a sneak preview of it. Head on over to my website, robertjacobson.com for a first look. Thank you for listening to Brave New Space. This is Robert and Keegan. Join us next time as we continue our conversation with Marshall Culpepper talking about the emerging needs of space verticals. Space verticals.